Would you turn your Bibles with me this morning to Matthew chapter 28? Please stand with me one more time and we will read God's Word together. Let's read Matthew 28, 16 through 20. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw Him, they worshipped Him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we are gathered together as Your church. You have filled us with Your Spirit. You have bought us through the life of Christ. You have made us Your sons and daughters. We're Your household. And we are so privileged today to celebrate the Gospel of Jesus Christ and to hear the glorious story of saving power in the lives of each of those that You have brought to profess their faith through baptism this morning. We are delighted. We are filled with joy and gratitude. We look to You and give You thanks. You are doing what You promised to do. You are being a great Savior. And we love to see You and watch You and our hearts are filled with joy. Father, as we rehearse these truths together this morning and refresh our hearts to understand again the significance of baptism and the Gospel being illustrated by it, we pray that You would continue to fill our hearts with joy and and love for Christ, love for You, our Father, and that we would be all the more eager to rest in Christ in His finished work. May you be glorified this morning. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Please be seated. This morning, uh, as I have other times when we have had a baptism ceremony, I love to refresh all of us on what baptism is about. So I'm going to share with you, with some adjustments along the way, the baptism class that I shared with those who are being baptized this morning, and I trust it will be a blessing to all of us. As I think about this text that we read this morning, Matthew 28, 16-20, Jesus is giving to His disciples the Great Commission right before He ascends to be seated at the right hand of God. And in this passage, I'm thinking about not only the baptism that He refers to, is part of the Great Commission. How do we go and make disciples? We go and make disciples of Christ by baptizing them and teaching them all that Christ has commanded us. But there is also the the ones who are baptizing you, Christ commanded you, and teaching them, those who are being made disciples, the ones who are being baptized. And I think all parties involved need to understand what Christ has planned when 
He calls us to baptize in the making of disciples. How many of you have baptized someone before? A disciple that you have discipled? Can I see your hand? All right, this is, this is a glorious thing. A wonderful privilege that Christ has called us to as His disciples to go to teach, to make disciples, to baptize them. So as we consider that, that means we need to be equipped to understand what baptism is and to know how to communicate this to one another in a way that is fitting with what Christ has spoken. I have five questions as we look at the theme of baptism this morning. What does the word baptism mean? We'll look at that from what the scriptural word, how it is defined. And then, how is baptism to be performed? The second question. The third question, when should baptism take place? And number four, what does baptism visualize? And then finally, is baptism absolutely necessary? I'm sure you've thought about these questions before. And there are different people and different groups of people that may answer these questions in different ways. And we'll talk a little bit about that. But basically this morning, I want to give to you in this time together what I believe the Bible teaches. First of all, what what does the word baptism mean? Baptism. When you look it up in the Scriptures and you would look that word up in the lexicon, you would see simply that it means to immerse. Immersion, submersion. Sometimes it's used figuratively. For example, being immersed into a situation like a calamity or affliction. This is overwhelming, you might say. That's kind of what that word means. And it's used very often, for example, when referring to John the Baptist's baptism at the beginning of the Gospels. And there... John the Baptist's baptism was a rite of immersion in water and it signified repentance. Repentance from apostate Judaism. Repentance from false religion. Repentance from sin. And it was also a preparation to receive the Messiah when He would be revealed. You remember that when John began to baptize, he said, I didn't even know who he was. But God told me that it would be the one on whom the Spirit of God would descend. So, as John was baptizing, he was waiting for God to reveal the Messiah to him. And of course, that happened at the baptism of Christ. And so all of Israel was waiting for the Messiah, and the baptism of John was preparing Israel to identify and receive Christ as the Messiah. But then there's Christian baptism that we see filling the New Testament. And that is a rite or ritual of immersion in water that signifies identification with Christ. If there's one thing that baptism signifies, it's union with Christ. Union with Christ and His church as well through the Holy Spirit. And it it, uh, proclaims that a person has been, the person being baptized is proclaiming, they're confessing to you publicly that they have been born again. That they have confessed and repented of their sin. Not that they're perfect, but they have begun to turn away from a lifestyle of of pagan uh, self-satisfaction and they've turned away from false gods to serve the one true and living God. They've begun to turn away from self-righteousness. They're confessing, I'm not trusting in anything that I can do to be made right with God, but I'm resting totally in the work of Jesus Christ. They're professing that trust in Christ. So that's what we see with the noun 
in the New Testament. Immersion. It's used with John's baptism. Used with Christian baptism. There's the verb also, baptizo. It means to dip repeatedly or to again to immerse, to submerge. To cleanse by dipping or submerging. To wash, to make clean with water. To wash oneself, to bathe. And so every time in the New Testament... When it speaks of baptism, it uses either that noun or that verb. Now, there's an important difference as you begin to study the New Testament and look through all of the occurrences of baptism. There's an important difference to recognize that the Bible, the New Testament in particular, uses that word in a spiritual sense and also in a physical sense. And it is important to differentiate between those two. In the New Testament, for example... The baptism of John, or Christian baptism, is distinguished from the baptism of the Holy Spirit. For example, those who receive, we could say it this way, those who receive the spiritual baptism of the Holy Spirit may then also receive the physical baptism of the Christian. And I'm not going to go into this. This is another long discussion, another sermon for another time. But the the baptism of the Holy Spirit in the New Testament is one and the same with regeneration, with salvation, with being born again. When you are saved, when, when God calls you to life spiritually, He baptizes you in the Holy Spirit. You are made one with Christ through the Spirit. You're made one with the people of God through the Spirit. So those who have been saved, regenerated, baptized with the Holy Spirit, they may then receive the physical baptism of the Christian because the second, the physical baptism, signifies that the other has indeed happened. You can give some examples of this in the Scripture. Notice physical and spiritual baptism. For example, Matthew 3.11, Mark 1.8, Luke 3.16, Acts 11.16 are all similar to John 1.33 which says this, And this is John the Baptist's own confession. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water, obviously that's physical, right? Baptize with water, said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who what? Baptizes with the Holy Spirit. The first usage in this verse is physical baptism. The second usage is spiritual baptism. Only Jesus can baptize someone in the Holy Spirit, bring them to spiritual life, regenerate them. John the Baptist baptized people with water in preparation for the coming of the Messiah. Now again, here's another example of physical and spiritual baptism. And while uh, while staying with them, He ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which He said, you've heard from Me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Lots of verses refer to physical baptism. And several verses then refer to spiritual baptism. Here's an example of spiritual baptism. Again, that's a figurative sense. I have a baptism to be baptized with, Jesus said. And how great is my distress until it is accomplished. He's talking about the baptism of suffering, when He was walking through the suffering heading toward the cross to bear our sins. Here is the baptism 
of suffering for Christ. And he told his disciples that they would share in that suffering as well. Here are some examples of verses in the New Testament that also refer to spiritual baptism. 1 Corinthians 12.13, this is a chapter that explains very clearly life in the body of Christ and how when someone is saved and filled with the Holy Spirit, indwelled by the Holy Spirit, they're gifted for their life in the body of Christ and they can minister to one another in the power of the Holy Spirit through the gift that they have been given. So this verse, Paul writes, For in one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one Spirit. There's one Holy Spirit that calls people to spiritual life, that causes them to be born again. And when that happens, they're then baptized into one body, immersed into one body. Galatians 3.27 for as, many of, as of, for, as many, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ, union with Christ, spiritual union with Christ by the work of the Holy Spirit, as many as you were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. If you've been baptized into Christ through regeneration, through salvation, then your life begins to change, doesn't it? If you have the living God living within you, He will change you. It's impossible not to have a change in your life. If God has indwelt you by His Spirit, Christ begins to be put on your life. The New Testament refers to a spiritual baptism event of the Holy Spirit and a physical baptism rite. And both use those same words, baptism or, or baptize or baptism. The spiritual baptism immerses a person into Christ and into the body of Christ when he or she is born of God. The only one who can do this baptism is the ascended Christ <clears throat> as he performs his salvation through the Holy Spirit. Mere men may baptize with water. But that is only an outward sign of what Christ has already done spiritually through the baptism of the Holy Spirit. So again, summary. Baptism means to immerse, sometimes in water, sometimes into Christ, in the body of Christ. Physical immersion of Christian baptism is the sign, visualization of the spiritual immersion of baptism in the Holy Spirit, which has already taken place. We'll talk more about that. In a moment. The second question this morning that I think is worthy of our consideration how is baptism then to be performed? We believe that the baptism to be performed is by immersion. Now, let me make this something clear. There's no clear, there's no com clear command in Scripture that says you must baptize by immersion. So, there's some indications, though, as we look through Scripture that would help us to know that immersion may be one of the best ways to, to baptize people. And we'll talk about what we mean when we say that it's not commanded and, and that there are other believers, brothers and sisters in Christ, who may baptize a different way. But I found it interesting, uh, as I was listening to a sermon recently uh, by R.C. Sproul, no less, uh, as he was talking about Romans 6, 1-11, through he referred to John Calvin, who said, who all of these men believed in baptism by sprinkling, right? And he said, John Calvin said years and years ago, that if there was one best way to baptize, if possible, because it most 
vividly and powerfully signifies what union with Christ means, it would be immersion. He says, if possible, do it. I found that very interesting. So I think that's one way to look at it. The Scripture, as we, as we think about it and think about what the Gospel means and what union with Christ means, immersion so powerfully shows that as an illustration. The, like we're saying, the meaning of the word can imply the mode of baptism. If it means immerse, submerge, dip, bathe, then, well, let's do it that way. Let's baptize that way. It seems to most clearly and vividly illustrate the meaning of the word. For example, there's another way to think about the reason for immersing, immersing people. The, the example of the New Testament church seems to imply it as well. For example, when we look into John 3, 23, and we see John the Baptist baptizing and Jesus and his disciples baptizing, they did so where there was plentiful water, a place where they could go down to the water. We see that in the book of Acts, Acts 8.36 and verse 38. That's the account of the Ethiopian eunuch's conversion to Christ. And Philip baptizing him, they went down into the water and up out of the water. And that would seem to imply that what happened there in that baptism was immersion. What baptism visualizes implies that submersion as well. Again, complete spiritual union with Christ in His death, in His burial and resurrection. And also union with the body of Christ through the Holy Spirit. The spiritual reality is effectively and powerfully visualized through immersion into water. Now, there's a second, a second part of how baptism is to be performed, not just by immersion, but I believe before witnesses. I think you have to have a group of people that participate in watching the baptism. And we can see that also exemplified in the New Testament. It was a public place of water where people were baptized. And it was often in the presence of others being baptized. I don't know of any situation that wasn't. Maybe the Apostle Paul, when he was saved and baptized, was baptized by himself. But most of the time, you see it in the presence of others. In the, in the presence of other church, uh, members of the church. Sometimes it was even uh, well, it was with church leadership, such as the apostles, those who did the baptizing. And even sometimes in the presence of false religious leaders, which I find very interesting. Those from the old apostate Judaism came out to see what John was doing and all these people being baptized. This was a very public thing in the New Testament. And that was very important because when you began to follow a new rabbi, a new teacher, a new doctrine, a new way of life, that was something that you wanted everyone to know so that they could understand the change that had taken place in your life. Being baptized openly before the leaders and members of a local body of Christ is a very important aspect of baptism. It communicates something to the witnesses. You're going to be witnesses of the baptisms today. It communicates that the baptismal's participants' confession of union with Christ. They're saying something to you. They want you to know that I, I am united with Christ now. Uh, they're, they're professing a repentance and faith toward Christ. In other words, they are turning away from false religion. They're turning away. Uh, they're beginning to turn away from their sin. They're telling you, 
I'm trusting in Christ alone for my salvation. And they are openly committing before you that they are going to follow Christ openly, shamelessly. Well, you, you really you can't be ashamed of Christ really and be baptized, right? It's a public thing. Well, I think the New Testament believers appreciated that so much more than we do today, and maybe certainly other believers in different places of the world where coming out as a Christian publicly stating you're, you're following Christ is very costly, even your life. Right? You, you hear often around the globe when, when in, in, in an Islamic rich society, when a Christian confesses their faith, when they turn away from Islam and they embrace Christ, they're ostracized at best. At worst, their life is taken. Right? That, that's what it means to publicly embrace Christ. And this is the same as that. And God in His goodness to us at this time, we don't have to face the taking of our lives, but there may be a day when we will. And God will be faithful to us even then. It also provides something to the one being baptized. It's accountability for them. It's a, a fellowship in the local body of Christ. And here's the qualification that I want to bring to this particular question. Because no particular mode of baptism is specifically commanded in the Bible, and, and many occurrences of baptism don't speak about how the believers were baptized, we don't consider the mode of baptism a doctrine over which we would divide true believers from unbelievers or apostates. For example, if, if, if someone said, I don't believe that Jesus is God, I don't believe in the Trinity. Well, that's, those are doctrines that you must affirm as a Christian. If you don't affirm those, you're not a Christian. That's the definition of being a Christian. Well, it's not that way with the mode of baptism. We have many brothers and sisters in Christ who have, would baptize with a different mode. And, and, and secondly, here down at the bottom, there are legitimate occasions that could necessitate baptism by a different mode. For example, we talked about this in, in the baptism class. I had the honor of, of baptizing an elderly woman who is now with the Lord, and she professed Christ late in life and was in such a condition that if she were to be immersed, she probably wouldn't live. And so I didn't immerse her. I poured water over her. And she was rejoicing, and so were we. And so God is good in, 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 this, in this. Even in the mode of baptism, there is, there is room. And I'm grateful for that. Question number three this morning. When should baptism take place? When? The first thing I want to do as we consider that question is just to observe the New Testament pattern. What do you see when you open your Bible? Acts chapter 2, verse 41 shows us that those who were there at the sermon that Jeremy read this morning from Pentecost, they received the word, they heard the sermon, they were cut to the quick. They believed, they received the word, then they were baptized, and then they were added to the church. Acts chapter 8, verses 12 and 13, they heard the word, they believed, they were baptized. Acts 8, 26-38, the word was read, they heard it. it. Belief was implied in their hearing of the word, and they were baptized. Acts 9, 1-19, and 22-16, both both chronicle the Apostle Paul's conversion. You see him there being confronted 
believing, rising, calling on the Lord's name for forgiveness, receiving the Holy Spirit, and then being baptized. I find it very interesting there, and this we'll talk more about this on the very last point, but I want you to notice there that the Apostle Paul received the Holy Spirit in salvation before what? He was baptized. Very important to notice. Acts chapter 10, he heard, believed, the Holy Spirit was received, then they were baptized. Acts 16.15, this is speaking of Lydia. The Lord opened her heart to the Word. That's another way of talking about salvation. And then she was baptized. Acts 16.33, the Philippian jailer and his family, they believed. The Philippian jailer came to Paul and Silas, Sirs, what must we do to be saved? The Lord is already working in their heart, convicting them of sin. They believed and they were baptized. Acts 18.8 and 19.1-6, they believed and were baptized. Consider the historic context as well. Baptism by immersion isn't just a New Testament thing. It predates the New Testament era. In fact, when a Gentile wanted to become a part of the Old Testament covenant family of God, Israel, right? He was circumcised and baptized by immersion during the ceremony that made him a proselyte. That ceremony signified that, again, he was totally done with his old pagan religion, with the old things that he believed, with false gods, pagan ways, and he was embracing Yahweh, worshiping Yahweh, following his ways. Consider the historic context. When people came to John the Baptist in order to be baptized, they were baptized, again, like we said earlier, in order to demonstrate publicly that they were willing to embrace what John taught, repentance of sin, rejection of apostate Judaism, readiness to accept the Messiah. So think of the logic of that. Look at what you observe in Scripture. Look at what you observe in history. Consider the logic. Since baptism is the ceremony by which a convert publicly confesses that they are dead to one way of believing and behaving and alive to another way of believing and behaving, it only makes sense for that public confession to follow the change of mind, that new belief, that new commitment. Therefore, considering the pattern of the early church, the historic context, the command of baptism, the logical necessity of conversion before confession, baptism should follow true conversion to Christ. Third, or the fourth question this morning, what does baptism visualize? What does baptism visualize? I want us to consider three texts this morning that really explain in perfect words what is visualized by immersion into the water. The first text is Romans 6, 1-11. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus. There is spiritual baptism right there. right? 
signified by the, the external ceremony, yes, but the meaning there is spiritual. Baptized into Christ Jesus. We're baptized into His death. Union with Christ is, is signified by that word baptism. Union with Christ. Union with Christ in His death. We were buried therefore with Him by baptism into death. In order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with Him in a death like His, we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. We know that our old self was crucified with Him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with Him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over Him. For the death He died, He died to sin once for all, but the life He lives, He lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. The Apostle Paul is declaring to us the powerful spiritual transformation that happens in the life of one who has been saved. They have died to one way of life. That way of life is buried. And they have been raised to a new way of life. And all of that is accomplished because through the Holy Spirit, the moment they are saved, they are brought into union with Christ in His death, burial, and resurrection. That's what baptism symbolizes. This union with Christ in His death, burial, and resurrection. Here's another text that really says the same thing with some different wording. Paul is illustrating salvation by the words circumcision, burial, baptism, being raised. Notice, in Him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. By putting off the body of the flesh. By the circumcision of Christ. That's another way. That's an illustrative way of referring to the death of Christ. You were circumcised. That's an illustrative way of talking about being rid of the old life of sin. And having been buried with Him, verse 12, in baptism, in which you were, ra you were also raised with Him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised Him from the dead. The power of God to raise Christ physically from the dead, giving Him a new body that is immortal, is that same power that summons the dead soul of an unbeliever to come to life spiritually, to believe in Christ, and to live forever in eternal life. The powerful working of God who raised Christ from the dead. And you who were dead, you were dead in your trespasses, your sins, and the uncircumcision of your flesh. What did God do when you were saved? God made you alive together with Him. There's union with Christ. That's the essence of salvation. Union with Christ. Having forgiven us all our trespasses. How did He do that? By canceling the record of debt. How can God forgive us? He cancels our record of debt that stood against us. He cancels the legal demands of the law for our death, which is due for our sin. 
And none of that does He cancel by anything that we do. He cancels all of that. Why? By nailing it to the cross of Christ. Christ alone is the Savior. Not us. We don't participate with Christ in our salvation. Only Christ can save. Here's another one. Galatians 2, 20 and 21. I have been... This, this is the essence of union with Christ right here in, in, in a couple of verses. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, in this body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. We'll come back to that verse a little bit later. So here's the summary. By union with Christ in salvation and His body through the Holy Spirit, we are dead to Adam. That that old life of sin and and slavery to the law and dominion over death, that life's buried. And we're alive to Christ now. We're dead to the law. That life is buried. We're alive to grace. We are dead to sin. Buried to what? What that means is dead to slavery to sin. We now have a new ability to to obey Christ. That life is buried, and we're alive to righteousness. We're dead to the kingdom of darkness. That life is buried. We're alive to the kingdom of Christ. And so that's why we immerse when we baptize. We're crucified with Him, buried with Him under the water, raised with Him coming up out of the water. Again, baptism does not accomplish those things. Baptism signifies, it illustrates, it proclaims what has already happened by the Holy Spirit. Baptism is a public visual confession of what God has already done in your life by His saving grace. Spiritual death, burial, and resurrection. It's a public confession of union and commitment to Christ, His church, His truth, His mission. And yes, baptism is a vulnerable, even a radical visual declaration of your faith and repentance through Christ. Think about it. What On what other occasion do you, with clothes on, get into a tank of water in front of a hundred people and have someone put you under the water? Is there any other occasion like that? Not really. And everybody's happy about it. It's vulnerable. It's radical. It's a visual declaration of your faith and repentance toward Christ. And that invites the witnessing church to disciple you and to hold you accountable and invites the witnessing world to know that you belong to Jesus Christ and Him alone, no matter what the cost. Isn't that what it means? That's what it means. The final question this morning that we need to consider Is baptism absolutely necessary? Now that can come across a bit as a trick question, can't it? And there's two things I want you to understand here, and we do need to keep these separate in our mind. But there's two important answers to that question. Is baptism absolutely necessary? First answer, 
It is not necessary in order to be saved. Remember what we've been saying all the way along, right? It is the illustration, it's the visual, external proclamation that one has what? Already been saved. However, here's the second part of this answer that we cannot mix up with the first part. It is necessary for the follower of Christ because Christ commands it. Like any other command. And no commands that we would follow as a follower of Christ are necessary in order to maintain our standing before God. Christ alone does that. So it's not necessary in order to be saved or to be made right with God, but Christ commands it. And so we must obey it out of love for Him. Let's look at that first answer. It is not necessary in order to be saved. And I have two basic reasons why I'm giving you that answer this morning. The first answer is because people were saved and received the Holy Spirit before they were baptized all throughout the book of Acts. That's that's a good reason. The Apostle Paul, he received the Holy Spirit before he was baptized. The Gentiles in Acts 10, they were saved and received the Holy Spirit before they were baptized. But here's really the the more important reason. Here's the the real weighty reason for you. Why Why do we not include baptism into those things that save? Because the Apostle Paul spent gallons of ink, as it were, communicating to us that by works of the law, no one is justified, but only by faith alone in Christ alone. That is the heart of the Gospel, dear friends. Let me show you two texts that speak of this. The Apostle Paul writes in Galatians 2.16, Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law. Now, what is included in works of the law? Anything that we are commanded by Christ to do. That is a matter of obedience. Ceremonial laws, moral laws, right? You won't kill, you'll love your neighbor, all these sorts of things. Those are works of the law. What is the command of the Gospel? Trust in Christ, right? Turn away from others and trust in Christ. And the Apostle Paul makes it clear that faith is not works. You see? We have to keep those separate. Faith is not works. That's important. Baptism is a command of Christ to us, and so that would be in the category of works of righteousness. And so Paul says here, we're not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. And so we, the apostles themselves, we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ, not by the works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. The apostle takes his pen And he writes the concept over and over again here. Not justified. Not made right with God. Justified means to be declared righteous before God. To be declared 
guilt-free, to be declared forgiven, to be declared free from punishment for sin. Justified. God's legal declaration over an individual. It doesn't happen by anything we do. Not by works of the law. But through what? Just faith in Jesus Christ. And that's why the apostles believed in Christ Jesus. They, did, they couldn't be. They wanted to be justified by faith in Christ. They knew they could not be justified by works of the law because by works, no one will be justified. In fact, in verse 21, the apostle Paul takes it one step farther. And he says, if you try to be justified by the law, that is the same thing as saying that Christ died for no purpose. And Paul says, I don't want to nullify the grace of God like that. God in His infinite grace sent Christ to live for us. To die for us. Substitute in our place. Right, His righteousness is our substitute. His death is our substitute. His resurrection is for us. And the moment we try to say, but God, I need to add something that, that I know has been taught to me that I must do to participate with you so that I can be made right with you. The moment we do that, Paul says, you're nullifying the grace of God. You're trying to gain righteousness through the law. And that means for you, you're saying Christ died for no purpose. He takes it even farther in Galatians 5, 1-4. And he says, for freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore. Don't, don't submit again to a yoke of slavery. That, that yoke of slavery that would say you have to keep these certain rules and do these certain ceremonies and rites and rituals and laws in order to be made right with God. Paul says don't submit again to that yoke of slavery. That's, that's a slavery. That is a life of slavery. Why? Because how do you know when you have done enough to please God? It's, it's like the carrots right out there in front of you and you've got to keep doing and doing and doing and doing. When is God satisfied with your doing? And the truth is, God will never be satisfied with our doing because we, by nature, are sinful. So from what comes out of us is then always tainted and unacceptable to God. That's why the only way that Christ receives sinners is when they are dressed in the perfect righteousness of Christ. Is when they are standing under the cross. Then God is satisfied. Then God is satisfied. Because of Christ. And so Paul continues, he said, Look, I say to you that if you accept circumcision, all right, that is one of many, that, that's a choice law in the civil code. Right? It's a ceremonial, a ceremonial law. It was the law that God established for his people to identify them with the covenant family. Guess what that is today? Baptism. Baptism identifies us with the covenant family of God. So you could think of circumcision the same way you could think of baptism. And, and, and back in Paul's day, this group of people that he was writing to, they believed in Jesus too. They believed that Jesus died and was buried and rose again, that He's their Savior. But they said, alright, in order to be a real Christian, in order to be a true Christian, in order, in order to be part of the true church, you've you got to be circumcised too. You've got to keep that ceremonial law too. They were adding one law to Christ for their salvation. You see it? You have to catch that. 
So the moment we take baptism, when we import that into Christ for our salvation, I believe in Jesus, but I got to do this too. What does Paul say then? Christ will be of no advantage to you. Isn't that, isn't that terrifying? Isn't that literally terrifying? I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision. One ceremonial law added to Christ. If you're going to try to be saved by keeping the law, one law, ceremonial law added to Christ, he said, then you're obligated to keep the whole law. That's the way salvation is. It's either by works or by faith. Paul told us this so many times. The law is there for you to gain eternal life. Right? That's why it was originally laid down. But you have to keep all of the laws. All the time. Perfectly. Not just with your hands, but in your heart. Who can do that? There's only one. Who is it? Christ. And He did it for sinners. He earned that perfect righteousness through the law for you so that you can trust in Him and His righteousness alone. That's salvation. But Paul says if, if you accept this one ceremonial law, then you've got to keep the whole thing and you're severed from Christ if you try to earn salvation that way. Severed. No advantage. Severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace. Well then, Paul, what's the answer? Christ alone. I have been crucified with Christ, Paul says. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. Think about it. How many times do you think throughout Paul's ministry he said, look to Christ. Look to Christ. His righteous life is enough. His atoning death is enough. His resurrection. Just rest in Him and what He's done. And He will save. So it's not necessary in order to be saved. Paul made that so clear. But yet, we are having been saved out of love. We are to follow Christ in obedience. And that's why we come back to the text we began with. Matthew 28, 18-20. Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Me. Go therefore, Make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Christ commanded it. And because we have been bought and purchased and loved by God, we, out of love for Him, say, yes, I don't want to be ashamed of you. I'm going to proclaim my faith through baptism. And we are obedient to Christ in that way. In closing this morning, I'm speaking to you who are saved and baptized. And as you think through this, and the glory of the Gospel, and as you heard Beth read the poem of the Gospel, and as you, you think about the text that we've been through, we can rejoice. We can rejoice without shame, in boldness, in courage, in what Christ has done in your life. And May you continue to proclaim it as you did on the day of your baptism. With the same vigor. With the same joy. 
And may your faith in Christ continue to grow as you continue to pursue Him by faith. And also this morning, I'm probably talking to some here who are saved but not yet baptized. Is that you? Do you know that you're born again, but you have not yet been baptized? Maybe you're an adult here, and you say, yeah, I, I believe I'm saved. I have not publicly yet confessed my faith in Christ. I would encourage you to be baptized as soon as you can. And follow Christ shamelessly and boldly with courage before the witnesses of our church and even the world. Talk with our church leadership who would love to celebrate Christ's salvation with you in that way. Maybe you're a young person and you, you think, I, I, I trust in Jesus. My sins are forgiven. Well, I would encourage you to talk with your parents. And sometimes parents, that can be a challenging thing, right? How do I know when my young person is ready to be baptized? I would give you, give you four things to look for. If you're trying to figure out, when, when is my young person ready to be baptized? Because you know, we, we don't make it a habit here of baptizing young children who, who you know, just pray and they want, they want Jesus, but we don't know whether they're, whether they're truly saved or not yet. We want to be careful with that. We don't want to give anyone a sense of false assurance. But how do I know when? And here are four things. One, does your young person understand the gospel? And here's what I mean by that. It's not... You say the gospel to them and they say, yes, 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 right? I mean, you are able to question your child and draw the gospel out of them so that they know why they can be saved. Do they understand something, even on a a, a young level, of the cross, of Christ's righteous life, of His resurrection, and His work to save them from their sin. Can they tell you the Gospel with understanding? And then as they understand the Gospel, that's obviously going to draw them into a, secondly, a sense of conviction of sin. When you look at your young person, do you see that their sins are bothering them? That they're struggling with them? That they feel feel guilty over their own sin? That the Spirit of God is beginning to show them you're a sinner just like everybody else. You need salvation too. Is, that, is there a fear of God in their heart? Our good and righteous judge who says that the wages of sin is death are the beginning to experience that kind of conviction and a, a sense of urgency beginning to develop in their heart and their need for Christ. Do you see what I mean? I mean, that our kids can be very young and you can have what you think is a very... A serious conversation with them and spell the, you know, spell the gospel out and, and you're sweating and crying and then at the end of a couple of sentences they, they say, who can we have some ice cream? Right? They're not feeling a sense of urgency yet, right? Who puts that sense of urgency and conviction in their heart? The Holy Spirit. See, what you're watching for is what the Holy Spirit is doing in their hearts. That's what you're looking for. Third, as a believer, do they struggle between the flesh and the Spirit? Can you see that? Even at a very young age, can you see that in their heart? They want, they want to do what Christ commands them, but then they understand that they're beginning to feel their desires for sin and how those are two enemies that rage against each other. And then fourth, 
do you see them have any hunger for the Word of God? Even as a young person, they can begin to have a simple desire to read God's Word and know God as their Father. I would look for these four. And when you see these four begin to develop, and it might not really be there visibly clearly until they're, I don't know, 12, 13, whatever. It's God's timing, not ours, right? It's God's timing, not ours. So look for those things. Finally, in conclusion, maybe you are here and you're not yet saved. Maybe up to this point, you have trusted in something that you can do to earn God's favor. Is that you? Maybe your, Christ, maybe your trust hasn't been in Christ alone. Or maybe you really haven't understood why you need to trust in Christ. Do you understand the seriousness of sin? We're all sinners. We've broken God's law. And God is a good and just judge and He is angry with sin because it destroys His creation. It destroys us whom He loves. And it dishonors Him. And as a just and righteous judge, He must execute justice for our sin. But He's also merciful, isn't He? He's merciful. And He sent His own Son, Jesus Christ, to bear our sins in His body on the cross. He sent His Son to live under the law, to obey the law perfectly in our place, to rise from the dead, to give us eternal life spiritually and eternally. And if you would trust in Him instead of yourself, He promises that He will save. All who come to Me, Jesus said, I will not cast out, but I will raise them up on the last day and I will give them eternal life. They will never perish, Jesus said. No man can take them out of My hands. No human work can make you right with God. Only Christ and the work that He did on your behalf. If that's you, I would encourage you to not wait. Today is a good day to come to Christ. If you need to understand more about Christ and the way of salvation so that it's clear to you and, and maybe you're wrestling with understanding how sinful you really are and God's justice. Maybe you've got questions and conflicts in your heart that, that are preventing you from really uh, stepping out in faith and trusting in Christ alone. Please, don't rest until you've gotten with someone who can open the Bible with you and explain God's truth to you. We'd love to do that. This is eternity. And none of us knows the door that God will place before us when that day of death will happen, right? It can seize upon us at any moment. Now is the right time. Now is the day of salvation. God is a righteous judge and He's merciful and gracious to all who call on Him out of a true heart. Come to Christ today. Let's stand together and we'll pray. Our Heavenly Father, we are so grateful that You have chosen us. You have called us. In Christ, You have justified us. You are sanctifying us. And one day, You will glorify us. All of it is a glorious work of Your grace. We rejoice in it. We trust in You. And I pray that today will be a day of salvation for some, sanctification for others, and a day that brings glory to You. We pray that You would bless the remainder of our services as we
participate together in baptism, and then also adding to your membership here. We are so grateful. We glorify Christ in all. We pray in his name. Amen.